you. Just be seated. That's good. Just a little bit of advertising before I start. This is a book here that I wrote a number of years ago. Thanks, mate. That's good. And it was intended for people who struggle with the Holy Spirit. Often people who get started, they speak in tongues and they don't know what to do from there on in. So I wrote this book, Giving Keys, as to, to what to do. So I was going to call it The Dummy's Guide to the Holy Spirit, but <laughs> told me it wasn't very good. <laughs> it wasn't a very appropriate. You know. So it's sort of like my personal journey, getting to know the Holy Spirit, understanding the spirit world, discerning spirit, receiving God's power, learning to cooperate with the anointing, just all those things. So um, it's out in the foyer there, $20.00. So um, don't steal any, please, if you... <laughs> we'll get you. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll endeavour to focus this week and not tell so many jokes, but you know, there's so much material here I can't control myself. <laughs> okay. Lovely presence of God. Thank you, music group. Oh, some of you are looking very serious. Thinking, oh. Especially after last night. Oh. Any Australians here this morning? <laughs> I remember the, the, the time when Japan beat uh, South Africa. I preached on hell on the Sunday. And, uh, and I started out by saying, all the South Africans are in hell this morning. <laughs> that didn't go down very well. <laughs> so one has to be careful about how one uses humour. Okay, let's have a look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. I never quite finished last week. So, uh, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's such a huge key to be in a right relationship with God and people get confused about what our status is with God and what our state, what our, our status is and what our state is. We confuse maturity with relationship. And uh, lots of us are quite immature and we've got a lot of things to deal with, our sociopathic ways and so on. And it's all part of growing up in God. It's all part of being whom God wants you to be. But we have a relationship with God which cannot be improved on. No matter what you do, you can't improve on your relationship with God. You can't be any more righteous. You know, if you're trying hard to be righteous, you're actually being offensive to the Lord because he has given you a righteousness in Jesus Christ. A righteousness that absolutely cannot be improved on. So when you come before God in prayer, you don't let it run through your mind how bad you are and how immature you are. You just say, thank you, Jesus, that you've purchased a righteousness for me at Calvary, a righteousness that can't be improved on. So you have a perfect relationship because God wants to relate to you in order to grow you into what he wants you to be. See... Um, so he's given you a key, therefore. I talked about keys last week. Uh, uh, he's given you a key to open a door to his blessings. So righteousness means being right with God. Okay? Being right with God. So you cannot be more right with God. Okay? Even if you're the biggest goody-goody in the church, you cannot be more right with God than Mike here. See? 
So that's it. <laughs> okay, Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I always feel that verse sums up the essence of sin. We all like sheep have gone astray. I will do it my way. I will do it my way. I will be like God. I will judge. I will determine what's right and wrong. So when we approach God in any other way through Jesus Christ, we are echoing that verse, I will do it my way. I have a better way of doing things. I will do it my way. And sometimes we've been taught that. Sometimes through life we've been taught if you're good, you get good things. If you're bad, you're out of here, we don't like you. And that transfers over into your Christianity. And so you're all the time trying to be good to God so he will like you or you will be in favor with God. But you have perfect favor. The most immature Christian, the most, in a sense, foolish Christian, has as good a relationship as the most mature because it is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I tell you, that's a good thing to get hold of. It saves an awful lot of time and striving. <laughs> so, Romans 3.23. We'll get into this. Romans 3.23. Now, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. I forgot I'm putting it up there. You guys have got a shortcut this morning, haven't you? So all of sin, so, so nobody, realize this, the whole deal about salvation is that people don't seem to appreciate just how difficult it all was because it was almost absolutely impossible because somebody, a perfect person, had to pay the price for humanity. And the fact is, there was no, nobody. There was none. It's true. Um, I remember hearing a, a, a story once of a, a pastor who said, he says, I, I challenge anybody who was in this church and without sin to stand to his feet right now. And a, a gentleman stood up and he says, you, sir, are you without sin? He says, no, I'm standing up on behalf of my wife's first husband. <laughs> so... So whatever, all have sinned, all have sinned. So nobody was worthy to pay the price for sin. It was like we were absolutely trapped under the devil's rule. See, one thing about all other religions, apart from Christianity, they all have one thing in common. They all deny that Jesus is God, every single one of them, all of them. There's only one religion in the world that claims that Jesus Christ is God, and that is Christianity. Right, so... So God had to become a man in order to be a perfect man, but he had to be a man in order to be the sacrifice. It's no good if he's a puff of smoke or he's purely God, you know what I mean? He had to be man as well, so humanity and divinity were together in Jesus Christ. So there it was. There was the perfect sacrifice. It was the cunning of all cunning plans. The Messiah had to be perfect, and he had to be human. So... Hebrews 11.4 is another interesting passage. There's actually, when you read the Bible, there's lots of interesting passages. In it. There's a statement made here. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. 
Now that was interesting. You know, all know the story, being good Baptists, how Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam, uh, came to God and offered up a sacrifice. And uh, Abel came and offered up a lamb, and, and Cain offered up the work of his hands. He had worked so hard and raised all these crops and fruit and everything and bought it as a sacrifice. But the only problem was he was doing it his way. When you see that word by faith, it means God has spoken. So by faith, uh, Abel did what he was told, but Cain did it his way. Cain had a better way. Oh, I love you so much, God. I'll do it this way. And the consequences were, were, were murder, and you know the story. But it's like um, there is only one way. And right from the beginning, God gave instructions. Now, why was he doing this? When you think of all the thousands of animals that were slaughtered, we, uh, we were in uh, Nepal a number of years ago on a mission trip. And as, as a result of looking around Nepal, we went to the temple of Kali, who was the goddess of murder, among other things. And there they were sacrificing to Kali, and they were slaughtering animals, and they were allowing the blood to pour over the heads of these idols. It wasn't a very nice place, actually. And uh, when we came away from this abattoir, it was just dreadful, I said to Miriam, I think we have this kind of sanitized idea of what the temple was like in Jerusalem because it would be a similar place where thousands of animals were being slaughtered. Blood was everywhere. Why was it like that? Why did God do that? That's not very nice. Nice little lambs and all the rest of it. See, it's really trying to get through to us the enormity of sin, trying to get through to us the price that's required to deal with sin. And even then it says in Hebrews that the, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin because the writer was arguing about Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. So let's have a look in Romans 3.24. Where are we? And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. That's a tricky word that, that means price paid. Through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, only Christ sacrificed could forgive. There was no other way. Nothing else could atone for sin. So what about all the people in the Old Testament? What about all the sin that was committed since Abel was murdered? You know, uh, and only Abel's lamb was accepted. What about all those sins? You know, John the Baptist said about Jesus when he saw him at the side of the river, said, behold the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. God had been painting a picture for centuries through the, the altars, through the tabernacle, through the temple worship, everything he was painting a picture about sin and how sin would be atoned for. And then the lamb was presented. This is probably the best way I can uh, understand it, is this. I have in my pocket a, um, a credit card. It's a good one too. It's a nice black one. Actually, they, sh they should have special colours so people can see it's a real good one, you know. You know like, it's better than a gold card. <laughs> the bank just gave it to me. And as I get free travel insurance with it, I thank you. I said, thank you very much. 
So anyway, this credit card, how do you use this credit card? Is this credit card worth anything? Yeah. No, it's not, really. It's not. It's a tool, but it's not in itself. It's just a bit of plastic. So you go to a shop, and I'm sure all of you know how to use these things. You just go charge it, and now you just have to stand too close to the counter and you pay for the other guy's coffee, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a credit card. It's a credit card. And what's the bad news about a credit card? Someone's got to pay it. One day, someone pays it. And that's the deal. And the, the, the retailer accepts the credit card in good faith, knowing that the bank's going to cough up and you will eventually pay your bills. Now, when Jesus, <clears throat> when Jesus came, it was like God said, paid in full. When they went to the temple, when they offered up the lambs, it was like, charge it, charge it, charge it up to Jesus. Because God, in his forbearance, left those sins unpunished because he was charging it up to Jesus. Okay, I'll give you another scripture because some of you are looking, what? So, Revelations 13, 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. What do you make of that? Before God even created the world, he had determined in himself that he was going to sacrifice Jesus. Because, get this, when you create a free will being, you create a being that has the power to deny you, has the power to love, and has the power to do evil. And you can't do in between. As soon as you take away free will, they lose the capacity to love. Now, God could either create a whole bunch of robots that all walked around like we were robots. Yes, God, we love you, Lord. Very sincere, you know. You can't help it. you just got to do it. Or he creates a free will being. Free will being who can come to church on Sunday and think about the rugby last night while they're going, we love you, Lord. <laughs> Who was doing that this morning? <laughs> you see, it's, it's very tricky, isn't it? But God kind of paid that price right before he started. He determined that he was going to come as a human being. He determined that he was going to lay his life down and pay the price so that he could purchase this human being that he was created, that he could be one with him. Some of you are not getting this. I can feel in the spirit. You're going, what? Heresy. Think about it. Free will being. God, God knows the beginning from the ending. He knows it. He knew we would walk away. And yet he still went ahead and created us. Was that irresponsible? Or was that simply part of the plan? that we would be able to choose whether we would love him forever or we would walk away and just serve ourselves. So it's a pretty enormous thing. When Jesus died, when his life was offered up on the cross, his blood was shed, the price was paid, and it was discharged debt, past debt, present debt, and future debt. That's the power of the blood of Jesus. So God had determined that. I remember reading a book by Gene Edwards. Now, Gene Edwards, was, he wrote Tale of Three Kings and a few other books that upset 
people years ago, but they were outstanding books if you read them carefully. I think, I'm just trying to think of the name of this book, I think it was The Early Life. And he, he used to write in a narrative kind of like a, um, like a play, like a, he was writing about a play. You're reading one of Shakespeare's plays. And he starts this book out, and what he's talking about is a young Christian who has been saved just a short while and the, kind of the ceiling's fallen in. You know that first moment when you realise Christians weren't perfect? Or when you realise the church didn't, wasn't all-knowing or seeing? and they did something to you which was very mean or very unkind or unjust, and you thought, will I carry on or what will I do? That happens to everybody. And this young Christian was weeping in his bedroom, saying, you know, God, what's going on, and so on. And an angel appeared to him, and they had this conversation. And he says, you don't understand. Come, I'll take you back into the beginning of time so that you see. And in the spirit, he took him back to like the beginning of everything, the beginning of time. And this young Christian was there, and the angel then said to him, this is as far as I go. I've been once, and I won't go again. You go by yourself. You walk on. And he walked on into the spirit. And then he stopped, and it seemed like there was nothing. And then he looked down, and there at his feet was a lamb that had been slain. There it was at the beginning. The beginning. And to understand about relating to God and walking with God and the whole deal of being surrounded by people that are not perfect like you, then you've got to understand that, the lamb that was slain. You've got to understand that God, when he created you, he paid the price before the beginning of time. And he gave you a way that you could come through and you could connect with him a way that was absolutely impossible for you because you are not perfect. And it required the death of a perfect person in order to atone for sin. It kind of makes you want to love God and be grateful for the cross rather than we kind of have this attitude, oh, oh yes, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm, Jesus has forgiven me type of thing. It makes you really grateful, and it makes you really want to worship. Okay, where to from here? What is the purpose of it all? Matthew six thirty three. You know, I, I I feel a lot of people. Well, I don't know the number, but there are a number of people in this church who have lost their identity. That sounds a bit crazy, doesn't it? But I don't mean you don't know that you're a man or a woman or something. I mean you, you've lost the understanding of what it's all about. I must have told that corny joke about the snake and the rabbit who are suffering from an identity crisis. Did you hear that joke? No. No, no. Well, you're going to get it anyway. So, <laughs> The snake and the rabbit were suffering from an identity crisis and, and they were very confused. Who are we? Who are we? Why are we here? And finally, the rabbit had a bright idea. He says, why don't we describe each other? And that would help. And the snake goes, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll go first, he says. Well, he says, 
you, you hopple around the place, you've got a bobby tail and big floppy ears and you eat carrots and the rabbit said, oh, I said, I'm a rabbit, I'm a rabbit. This is working. Oh, yes, I know, I'm a rabbit. And he says, and the snake says, well, okay, you describe me as well. He said, you have a hypnotic stare, you've got a shiny suit and you're covered in diamonds. And he goes, oh, no, said the snake, I'm a TV evangelist. <laughs> <laughs> So there we are. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now you're trusting in Christ, you are righteous, okay? But what does the kingdom mean? What does it mean, seek first his kingdom? Where is it? Is it here? Is it there? Where is the kingdom? Is it in this church this week? You know what Christians are like. We go to the church where the kingdom is. And uh, so where is it? It says in the scriptures, the kingdom of God is within you. Well, it is within you if Jesus Christ is your Lord. Because the kingdom is wherever Jesus is reigning. Wherever he is reigning is the kingdom. Okay, because a kingdom requires a king, it requires authority, and it requires subjects. So when you make Jesus your Lord... And that should happen when you tap into his righteousness. Then when you make him your Lord, then you should be in the kingdom of God, even if you are the only one in the church. <laughs> See, if you yield control, it's all about control. It's all about this free will. Gosh, God, there must be another way to deal with free will, you know? Maybe if we've got the technology. But if we can deal with free will... This is the whole thing about free will. Is Jesus your Lord? And you will notice, you may not have noticed, but things will happen to you. Mean things. And sometimes unjust things and unkind things. And sometimes good things. So that you will know whether Jesus is your Lord or not. I remember hearing a story once of an evangelist who was with a guy who was a very, very wealthy man, a billionaire, and they were in the car together and they'd been to a meeting and he was driving the evangelist back to his motel. And they stopped the car and the billionaire pulled out his checkbook and wrote out a blank check and signed it and gave it to him. He says, here you are, you fill the numbers in. And the evangelist sat there for a minute and then he ripped the check up and gave it back and he said, you passed the test and so did I. Woo. You see, sometimes good things are not always right things. And it's to know what is right, and that's kingdom. When you're in the kingdom, your will should be yielded. You know, Romans 12, you talk about that, knowing the will of God, present your body as a living sacrifice, so on. That you don't be conformed to the world. The world says, grab it, take it. Do unto others before they do it unto you, you know. That's the world. But the kingdom of God has different rules. It's all upside down. It's all different. It's all another way. If you yield your control to Jesus, it's easy for him to clean you up. Do you realize that? If you've been holding on to problems for years and years and years, that's the word, holding on to. Because when you yield, God will start to show you a way a way to deal with it, and it's different for everyone, but he will show you a way. 
That's how he cleans up your life. He renews your mind. Because it's what we think. I almost said what we think causes us to stink. Well, it does. Our stinking thinking is the root of our problem. What we think. Oh, to have my mind in line with Jesus, that I think his thoughts, that I flow with his will truly. You know? But at the same time, you think of Paul, who I feel flowed pretty much in God's will, but boy, did he get some exciting things happen to him. He was shipwrecked, he was whipped, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was stoned. He had all sorts of interesting things happen, which don't usually take place on Sunday. And at, uh, at the end of the day, who was Lord? Because the Bible says this, that God gives grace for whatever it is we have to endure Whatever it is we go through, whatever we face, he gives grace. And people can look at others and think, this is not fair. I've become a Christian, and I grew up in this gangster home, and I'm the only Christian out of the whole bunch of them, and they're all crooks. And look, and look at so-and-so. They come up in this Christian home, and their father was a pastor, and their grandfather was a pastor, and, everything, and everything's just been so loving and so perfect. And they don't have to go through what I go through. But I tell you, you are carrying a lot more grace. Grace is the ability to do that which is impossible. I remember a, a, a lot of, I used to do a lot of lectures for YWAM on the Holy Spirit. And on the Holy Spirit week used to be really exciting. And uh, there was a young lady arrived from Mexico. And when I heard her story, she came to me afterwards at a meeting and said, I've got a problem. I said, what's that? She said, every night demons come into my room and sit all around the shelves and sit on the bed and sit everywhere. Just hundreds of them. And that's always been the way it is. Really? I said, tell us about your background. And it turned out she was the daughter of a Mexican drug dealer who was part of a cartel in Mexico. And she was the only Christian in the family and daddy loved her so much he shouted her a trip to New Zealand to do this YMTTS. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. Well, we got to work on her and we cleaned that place out. We cleaned her out for a starter and then when the demons arrived the next night, they got a shock because someone was waiting for them to arrive. And after a few shouts and cursing demons and rebuking them, they all left, and she arrived in class the next day. Yes, you know. God took her all the way to New Zealand. That's the grace of God. Yeah. Took her away from an environment and taught her a more perfect way. Yeah. You know, there's so much for us to learn, but if we are so logical and we go, ah, oh, you know, the church down the road, I can go down there and the priest can tell me about it or he can bless me or whatever. You know, we have our own way. When we were just young Christians, God laid it on our hearts to go to Jerusalem to the Feast of Tabernacles. And unbeknown to Miriam and I, this was in 1980, it was the first time that they had that Gentile gathering <coughs> of the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, we turned up there, and we knew nothing about it because it didn't really exist then, but Derek Prince, Lance Lambert and all these other high flyers, they turned up and met together because they knew each other and they were just founding the embassy at Jerusalem. So we hooked into a conference with uh, Ruth Heflin, who was a prophet. And she was having a 
conference with Dr. Paul Yonge Cho's mother-in-law on prayer and fasting. So we were going to go to that. We had no money, and uh, it's a big, big story how God provided. It was just amazing how he provided. But the argument that was put to us by a number of people was this. What do you have to go all the way to Jerusalem? Why do you have to do that? You know, aren't the churches all around Christchurch? Aren't there lots and lots of people who could pray for you? Aren't the ministries throughout New Zealand? Why go there? I could offer no other reason than God's telling us to. And that was where we first encountered the anointing in the sense of ministry coming on our lives, was in that place. And that's a whole story in itself, what happened there. But God met us powerfully in Jerusalem. It was there that God started to prepare us for the loss of our youngest daughter. Because he, he really challenged Miriam to lay our children on the altar, which she struggled and struggled. And being a male, I couldn't, what's the matter? Why just give them up? You know? <laughs> I couldn't see that. But she, could, as an intercessor, could pick up the, the ramifications of it, but didn't at that time understand it meant that, that in uh, 10 years' time, around about 10 years' time, our youngest daughter would die. You don't know, you know. And this is what you mean about the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God is there, it's, it's always just in God's economy. Because God is justice, God is righteous, God is good. And we think that God is good if we're indulged and we have everything we want and everything's laid on, our team always wins, and you know what I mean? That's when, that means God is good. I'm sorry. Because I have not met a person who is a really mature person yet who has not suffered in their life. And that applies, it's funny, that applies to the saved or the unsaved. You know, one of my favourite characters in history is Winston Churchill. You know, I apologise to the Irish if there's any here, but it's, uh, Winston uh, epitomised that as God prepared that man to lead his country through the Second World War. And if you want to see a study in a formation of a character, have a look at the wilderness years where Churchill was rejected and not listened to and basically he almost gave up, completely gave up. But he carried something which I am certain he picked up from God, a sense of destiny that one day a great peril would come on the nation and he would lead them through to victory. Isn't that incredible? And God prepares people. He prepares all of them. Abraham Lincoln. You know the way he prepares them. I won't mention any of our politicians. George Washington, Valley Forge, and so on. You know, God prepares people through suffering and pain and difficulty. Now, if you have a relationship with God, you know that you have the righteousness of Christ. You know you're connected there with God. Then you will trust. Surrender you have the kingdom and the grace of God. If you struggle on and strive and try to break through and I will do it my way and where is God and blah, 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 then you're in for a life of awful pain. You see, as God cleans you up, it's the fear of yielding our will, of trusting God with your life that enables problems to remain. Whom God owns, he will heal and restore. Okay? 
whom he owns. So that's the question you've got to ask yourself. God, do you own me? Is there anything I wouldn't do? And no matter what it is he asks you to do, you will have the grace to do it. I've just, there's so many remarkable stories I've heard of the grace of God and what God does and why God does it and how God's wisdom is way different from our wisdom. Thank goodness for that. See, Romans 6.16, it all pivots on ownership. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So your future pivots on ownership. First of all, God gives you a key of righteousness where you, you can connect with him. You have a relationship with him. You can't improve on that relationship. And then the onus is on you to surrender your life and make him your Lord. When you make him your Lord, a partnership begins where you should be walking with God and he should be dealing with stuff and he should be using you in whatever way he's called you. So your future pivots on ownership. Who is your Lord? The fashions of this world or Jesus Christ? See, I gave some examples last week, but see, I was a prisoner of people's approval and when I yielded to Jesus, my eyes opened and it began to make a difference and I began to make a difference. That's how he lays a foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ. See, a lot of the time we look at people and we think people um, were just amazing people. And because they're amazing people, God used them in such an amazing way. Look, that's just human. We do. We look around and we see someone who's doing something great in ministry or helping people or whatever, and we go, oh, I could never be like that. Because we haven't released our potential. Some of the figures in history, like think of William Booth. Now, we look back in history and we know how he proved himself. We know what he did. It, it, uh, he was knighted by Queen Victoria and as he walked through the streets of London they sent a coach for him and he said no I'll walk in the streets with my people and as he walked the streets to Buckingham Palace the crowds thronged the streets and cheered him as he went but it wasn't always like that William Booth was a good churchgoer he was a good Methodist and a nice man helped old ladies across the road gave out the hymn books at the door and he did good deeds, you know. He was a nice person. And one day William found himself very ill, and he was basically on his deathbed. The family had gathered around, and he was lying there dying, and he was, went into a coma. And when he was in that coma, he woke up and found himself in glory. And then he, he looked around him, and he saw these wonderful, beautiful creatures um, flying overhead, and the Lord, the, um, an angel appeared and said to him, see, these are some of my Lord's chosen saints. And then he looked around, and there was a woman that he knew on earth. And this woman came up to him anxiously and said, Mr. Booth, remember me, remember me. And she, he remembered her. And she said, have you spoken to my son about Jesus? He is so lost. And William remembered her son, he was one of the town drunks. And William remembered that he would cross the road whenever he saw him coming. 
And he said, oh, I'm, I'm so anxious for him, for his salvation. And a whole chain of people appeared to William, one after the other after the other, and each one inquiring about the condition of their loved one, and had he said anything? And William began to feel worse and worse and worse, to the point where tears were running down his face. What have I done? What have I done? He kept saying to himself. And then he looked, and there was the Lord himself. And Booth fell on his face before the Lord, and he began to cry out, Send me back. Give me another chance. I won't let you down. And Jesus just pointed. And William followed his point, and there he saw the most terrifying sight. He saw this great cliff with millions of people walking over the edge into a great fiery conflagration at the bottom. And these people were just ordinary people, just doing ordinary things. And they went down that cliff. Then he looked back at Jesus and the Lord said, go back and don't fail me. And next thing, his eyes opened and his wife's face was before him. He says, William, William, we thought you had gone. And he rose from that sickbed and went down to the east end of London and began to preach the gospel. <clears throat> and they pelted mud at him and dead animals and bricks and abused them and everything else, but the Salvation Army was born. A movement that rocked the world. See, just an ordinary man who came to a place where he was willing to give everything and then he became extraordinary. We don't all have a call like William Booth, but that was his call and it would never have been realised if he hadn't come to that place of surrender. And that's to understand, we're not great Christians, we just serve a great God, a great God, who can take us, who basically are worthless, he can take us and he can make us into something amazing, something amazing that people can't believe that we're, we were anything else other than who we are. I'll read out this passage here, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 10. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. See, God's plan and God's wisdom is hidden in the spiritual realm. And he gives plans to people and to churches that will break into our minds and break into society. You know, growing this church or developing uh, a presence in this community is not about having bright ideas. Forget it. You know, it's not about being clever and working harder and doing this and get this speaker in and that one and that'll do that and that, oh, that'll do it. No, I'm sorry. It's when people bow their knee. It's when people bow their knee before Jesus Christ and say, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let it come in me. And when your kingdom comes, then you will change. 
Just one last scripture. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Help. <laughs> Fresh is on. <laughs> love for the Father is not in them. The world is the spirit of the age, the fashion which changes and shifts and moves. If that winds you up, and especially young people, you are so under pressure and so subject to that. Are you willing to stand up in school and say who you are? I remember hearing a story way back in the uh, 70s about a little red-headed girl. She wasn't a very attractive-looking girl, and she was a bit overweight and everything else. She went to Hagley High School. She came back from a Christian camp over at Living Springs, and she turned the school upside down for Jesus. She was leading teachers to Christ. She was leading her friends and everyone she could get near. Half the school was converted to Christianity because of one girl whom the kingdom came in. Kingdom come. You worried about what your friends are thinking of you? If you're worried about their opinions, you will never serve God perfectly. You never will. Because that's the spirit of the world. That's the spirit of the age. See, I remember uh, as a young Christian talking with a couple who were really on fire for God. They absolutely were on fire. And they just wanted more and more of God. I'm not there yet. <laughs> and uh, but they were involved in selling Tupperware. And they said to me that oh, God's told us to give up the Tupperware. He's got more for us. And when I saw them the next week, they said, I said, how's the Tupperware going? It was a couple of weeks later. They said, oh, would you believe it? Sales have gone through the roof. Absolutely crazy. We're booked out. We've got so much. And, you know, oh, we just couldn't give that up. And th then they stopped coming to the meetings, and then I never saw them again. See, that's what can happen. Before we went to Oxford, we had lots of offers of other churches. But none of them did not witness, didn't witness, and some of them were jolly sight better than Oxford. Oxford was about the bottom of the pile. But when we got there, we just knew the grace of God. We knew the call of God. That was the difference. And I, when I look back, I say to Miriam sometimes, how on earth did we do it? How did we go to that place? You know, it was like the end of the earth. That's what it felt like back then. The things were a lot sleepier. There was a young man who lived a hundred or so years ago named George Mueller. You ever heard of George Mueller? German boy. George was a, a, a young boy in Germany who was engaged to a rich merchant's daughter who was also very beautiful, a Christian. And uh, he was very, very much in love with her. But there was one condition, that if he was going to marry her, then he had to give up this foolish notion of being a missionary in England. Well, George made the right choice. And he walked out on her and went to England by himself with no money, no nothing. And everyone was so angry with him, including his family and everything, he went. Eventually, he ended up pastoring a small English church and married an English girl. And then he went on from there to become an apostle to the children of England. As God led him by faith to build orphanages throughout England, and taking in kids from the street and training them up as believers. Millions of pounds passed through his hands 
And they found that out after they read his diaries after he died, how he prayed in all the money and all the food and everything. A great grace rested on him because he was a man who was fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. His future was in the hands of God. The Holy Spirit will speak to you to obey. It will seem foolish in the world's eyes. Everyone else may be saying, no, no. But if you're listening to God and you know it's God, do not hesitate. If you love Him, you will obey Him. Then He will set you free and He will reveal His plans to you. Amen. Let's just stand, please. And the lights suddenly came on. Was that an angel or was it the lights? Can you leave those down, please? feel like I should do a dance or something. <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't. Thank you, Jesus. Now, okay, uh, you, you know what, obviously what I'm going to ask, but I want this. I don't want people to come up because you get people who come up because they're up at every old call. They come up because they think, oh, I feel guilty. I should go up. We're not about that. I'm about that. If, if God is calling you to come up and, and surrender your life, then the anointing will be on you now. The Holy Spirit will be on you now. You will know that God's calling you. You will know. Because I feel this is different this morning. It's like He wants to bring people into something and prepare them. It's like there is a real call going out to people. God's going to shift this church. I believe He's going to shift this church. But before He shifts this church, He's got to shift some of you. Okay? All you have to be is responsive to the Holy Spirit. That's all you have to be. Whatever you are thinking now, and of the cost and the, how ridiculous it all is, in the terms of common sense, you're absolutely right. It is ridiculous. It is foolish. You shouldn't do this, naturally speaking. But if you love Jesus and you really want to serve Him and you really want your life to count, then absolutely, this is the bottom line. This is the foundation. You have to do it or you've come as far as you'll ever come as a believer. Amen? So just come forward if that's what you want to do this morning. In a consecration, you just come and just say, God, here I am. And you know the Holy Spirit's prompting you to do this. And maybe you've got something in your mind that you need to lay on the altar. Maybe it's your girlfriend or boyfriend, new car, whatever. You can give that to me. You know, you've got... Um, there may be something that you have to lay down, something that you have to surrender. And only if God's telling you to do it. I don't want to see people up who come up every week. That means you're confused about your righteousness. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Jesus.